A second American hostage kidnapped from Israel and taken to Gaza has been declared dead. Meanwhile, a member of Israel's war cabinet says his country could increase military activity against the Hezbollah militant group in the north of Israel. The latest from Israel and Gaza coming up. Today is Thursday, December 28th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead at a campaign event in New Hampshire yesterday, the former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley neglected to mention slavery as a cause of the U.S. Civil War. Today, she's walking back her comments. Abortion rights activists in Arizona don't want the courts to have the final say on the issue. Our courts shouldn't be deciding these things. These decisions should be between a pregnant person and their trusted medical provider. A potential ballot initiative in Arizona could enshrine abortion rights in the state's constitution. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. President Biden says he is devastated to learn another American died at the hands of Hamas. Judy Weinstein was thought to have been held hostage, but today her kibbutz announced Hamas killed her on October 7th, alongside more than 1,200 people in Israel, including her husband. Health officials in Gaza say more than 21,000 Palestinians have been killed so far in the war, including 21 today in an Israeli strike in Rafah, according to a hospital director. Eyewitnesses say the strike hit a home where displaced Palestinians were sheltering. The Israeli military says it's looking into the incident. NPR producer Anas Baba reports a scene of chaos and bloodshed where victims are being treated at the Kuwaiti hospital. The casualties and the wounded are keep reaching the ER non-stop. The majority are children and small babies. One of them was a pregnant woman and she was begging the doctor to check on her baby inside of her belly. The doctor told her, my priority is you now, not your baby. A woman with all of her face is just like covered in dust, a white dust, laying on the, on the wall and just crying. Dead bodies all over the place. An ambulance just opened the doors. A small infant, all of his head is wrapped from Rafah City, Anas Baba, the Kuwaitan hospital. The White House says the U.S. and Mexico will cooperate to disrupt human trafficking and address the root causes of a historic migrant surge, including poverty. This after top officials met yesterday in Mexico City. Another U.S.-Mexico meeting is planned for next month in Washington. Mexico's president says a migrant caravan headed north has scattered. NPR's Ada Peralta has this report. Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador says the number of migrants in the caravan has dropped to around 1,500. Some estimates had put it at 8,000 when it left from the border with Guatemala. López Obrador says President Biden called him earlier this month concerned that U.S. authorities were apprehending some 12,000 migrants a day at the southern border. López Obrador said Mexican authorities made moves, and now that number is down to 7,000 a day. He added that the U.S. and Mexico have reached important agreements on immigration, but he did not specify what. This year, Mexico has detained a record number of migrants, but political, economic, and social instability in several Latin American countries have continued to drive migrants north. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley appears to be backpedaling. The presidential candidate told voters last night in New Hampshire the Civil War was about the role of government. She did not mention slavery, sparking a backlash. Today, she told a radio show, of course, it was about slavery. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Environmental advocates say 2024 will be a critical time for the state to ensure it will meet its 2030 climate goals. They're calling on lawmakers to pass measures in the new year to help the state slash greenhouse gas emissions and build more clean energy. Here's WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Lawmakers in the House and Senate say they hope to pass a big climate bill in 2024. And advocates with the Environmental League of Massachusetts have some thoughts about what should be in it. They want the state to make it easier to permit and build renewable energy projects and power lines. They want the state to double its offshore wind targets. And they want to see policies aimed at electrifying public transit and building EV charging infrastructure. Amy Boyd-Rabin is the vice president of policy for the group. So this legislative session needs to be the moment where Massachusetts makes the jump from ambition to implementation. The group says it also supports efforts to electrify heating and cooking appliances in buildings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The state auditor's office is reporting a drop in the amount of money that was stolen from the state in the last fiscal year. Auditor Diana DiZoglio said nearly 800 cases of public benefits fraud were discovered, that totaled more than $12.3 million lost. That's over $1 million less than what was stolen in fiscal year 2022. The state says it conducted more than 40 percent more fraud investigations in fiscal 23 than it did the year before. Leaders of a homeless shelter in Boston that's providing services to migrants say they hope 2024 will be a year of new possibilities for people in their care. Boston Rescue Mission added 40 beds for Haitian migrants this winter. Shelter President John Saman says during the holiday season, staff is not only providing beds and meals and gifts for shelter guests, but helping the migrants apply for work permits. A lot of people that come to us have broken dreams, and that is the hope for the holidays, is that our dreams, our hopes are met. The idea of coming to us is not for them to stay here, it's for them to move forward. The 40 extra beds were paid for with city funding. In the forecast, lots of gray out there. Damp weather should be with us through Sunday, New Year's Eve day. Tonight should be cloudy, just a bit cooler than it is right now. Tomorrow, overcast, some showers, temperatures in the mid-40s once again. The weekend should have clouds on Saturday, then some sunshine on Sunday. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Israeli leaders are warning that there could now be a war to its north in Lebanon. There have been near-daily rocket attacks from Lebanese militias, with Israeli attacks in return. This comes as Israel's offensive continues in Gaza, nearly three months after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. NPR's Jason DeRose is following these developments from Tel Aviv. Hi, Jason. Hello. What is the concern on the Israel-Lebanon border? What's happening there right now? Well, the head of the Israeli military says troops were, quote, in very high readiness for expanded fighting to the north. Member of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's war cabinet, Benny Gantz, said yesterday the military could move to push militants away from the border if diplomacy and pressure don't work. And that time is running out. Um, Ari, the last couple of days have seen a significant increase in the rocket attacks from Hezbollah. That's the Lebanese militia that has a lot of heavy weapons compared to Hamas. Those rockets result 
in those air raid sirens going off and activating the defense system called Iron Dome to shoot them down. And this has been going on for weeks. Tens of thousands have been evacuated on both sides of the border. Also, Hamas is still firing rockets into Israel from the south. And all of that is keeping many people here on near constant edge. I want to turn to an airstrike at the Maghazi refugee camp in Gaza that happened over the weekend. Israel addressed that strike today. Tell us what they've said. Well, that's one of the deadliest single instances since Israel began these strikes. The Associated Press had a reporter near there who saw the hospital records showing 106 killed. The Israeli military says that on December 24th, fighter jets attacked two nearby targets where a number of Hamas operatives were believed to be located. It says before the attack, it took steps to reduce the harm to those not involved. The military today says in a statement that a preliminary investigation shows that during the operation, additional buildings adjacent to the targets were damaged. And it says the investigation continues into how this happened, that it regrets the harm caused to civilians, and that it's working to draw lessons from the incident. As a reminder, Ari, Gaza health officials say the death toll there has surpassed 21,000 people now. That's mostly women and children. All right, let's pivot now from Gaza to the West Bank, where Israel arrested people, it says, to stop them from sending money to Hamas. What more can you tell us about that? Well, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, says five money-changing companies in the Israeli-occupied West Bank have been named as terrorist organizations. He says the offices transferred money to Hamas and the group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. After the defense minister signed the order declaring them terrorist organizations, Israeli forces raided nine currency exchange branches in the West Bank, according to Gallant. He says authorities confiscated the equivalent of nearly $2.8 million. Gallant says security forces also arrested 21 Palestinians suspected of transferring funds to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And what do the money exchanges say to those allegations? Well, some have denied they have anything to do with Hamas. Here's Mahmoud Ajuli, the nephew of the owner of one of the money exchanges who was arrested in the city of Al-Bariya in the West Bank. Ajuli says he knows that his uncle, Anwar Ajuli, was arrested, but that's the only thing he knows. Now, the Palestinian Authority's Monetary Commission issued a statement saying that raiding the money changers is illegal, that those shops aren't under the jurisdiction of the Israeli government. And finally, will you just update us on the humanitarian situation in Gaza, which becomes more dire each day? Ari, there are so many problems in Gaza. Water, fuel, communications, medical care. But let's focus on food right now. The UN's World Food Program says the scale, speed, and severity of the food insecurity in Gaza is unprecedented. Because food is so scarce, the UN has activated its Famine Review Committee. It's warning that the risk of famine increases every day because of the intense fighting and the lack of humanitarian access. And it's important to remember that prior to October 7th, about 500 supply trucks brought food and medicine and fuel into Gaza each day. Now, and Gaza has more than 2 million people, and on many days, only about 100 or so trucks are getting in with those badly needed supplies, food, water, and medicine. NPR's Jason DeRose in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome.
now a story of the changing fortunes of one village in China. Almost 20 years ago, a mid-ranking Chinese official by the name of Xi Jinping visited a village a couple hours west of Shanghai. The locals were closing down mines, upgrading the economy, cleaning the environment. She was impressed, and when he went back 15 years later, this time as China's president, he declared it a model village. A sputtering economy is now pushing more people into gig work post-COVID, so a pair of entrepreneurs have teamed up with the local government to try to make that same village a model once again. NPR's John Ruich paid them a visit. The village of Yuzun's first transformation was from being a polluted backwater to a national class 4A scenic spot visited by daily tours. China's rapid development had often come at the expense of the environment, and Yuzun showed that that didn't always have to be the case. This time around, the stakes are just as high. A short bike ride from the center of town is DN Yuzun a hub for digital nomads, or people who essentially can work online from anywhere. It's run by two men, Xu Song and Ade. Xu Song says the digital nomad hub here is fundamentally like infrastructure. If you want to get rich, he says, citing an old saying, you have to build roads first. And yes, there is a cost in it for local government. But because of roads, the economies of the villages near them can develop. The digital nomad hub can be a similar catalyst. This is a modern living and co-working space that can accommodate about 150 people. It's got fast internet, a gym, decent coffee, And it's in a building that already existed, but nobody used. There are lots of those buildings around China from past development schemes, Xu says. As the ecosystem expands and spreads, those assets that nobody wanted become something that people want, because they'll think, I could open a coffee shop here, I could open a small restaurant, I could open a youth hostel. That's because now there are more people around. People like 22-year-old Yang Xiaoshui. Yang is taking a gap year between her third and fourth years of college. She's trying to get a small product design company off the ground. And she says she has the ideal work-life balance here. She likes the freedom of doing her own thing and the fact that she's near nature. The DN Yuzun model seems to jive with Xi Jinping's plans, too. Two years ago, she declared victory over poverty in China. Now he's doubling down on the idea of revitalizing the countryside. Experts say, in part, that means diversifying the economy and making it more digital. Kristen Looney is a China hand at Georgetown University. She says it serves another purpose, too. Oftentimes, these policies that target the countryside are not so much about the countryside, but they are about the externalities of growth in the cities. Chinese cities are overcrowded. Youth unemployment was last reported at over 20 percent. And homes in urban areas are too pricey for many to afford. Yet over the past several decades, that's where opportunity and fortune have been found. And there's this huge hollowing out of villages. And so if you can't convince people to stay, maybe you can convince young people who've never been in the countryside, right, to go. Officials appear intrigued. Xu Song says the authorities are paying for DN Yuzun's land and utilities. And he's had several queries from other villages about the model. 
The Minister of Human Resources and Social Security even visited from Beijing a few months ago. As the afternoon winds down, Ada gets a pickup game of Ultimate Frisbee going. It's part of Dian Yutun's many efforts to build community and make digital nomad life fun. At 4 p.m. over in that building, there's another activity. They've invited a sports expert to talk about staying hydrated during exercise. It's not every day you see a frisbee game in rural China, but that's part of the point. Xu Song says he imagines a different future for the countryside. It's a place, he says, where you'll be able to chat about quantum physics or Kafka, listen to chamber music, and have a glass of red wine. And it's almost possible to envision that happening here at Dian Yutun. It's just unclear how this test case can scale up. John Ruich, NPR News, Yutun, China. We can't let 2023 end without the All Things Considered holiday cocktail tradition. And this year, we are going zero-proof. But please don't call them mocktails. I prefer to say elevated and elegant, non-alcoholic, spirit-free cocktails. We take a visit to Binge Bar for zero-proof cocktails. That story tomorrow on All Things Considered. You can listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. Bottoms up. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. People in much of the country could see lower heating bills this winter, but many families are still struggling with the cost of staying warm. The result is that families are further behind on the utility bills than they were at the beginning of the year. We'll take a look at why that's coming up. On Wall Street, modest gains for the Dow was up more than a tenth of a percent. S&P barely budged. Same for the Nasdaq. It lost a small fraction. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Burton's Grill and Bar, with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. Sunday, December 31st, is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 45 degrees in the Boston area, staying pretty raw through the nighttime, breezy. Not too chilly overnight tonight, just a few degrees cooler than what it is right now. Tomorrow should bring more rain, though less than we had today. Should be in the mid-40s for a high. Weekend's looking mixed right now. Should be cloudy on Saturday, the chance of showers close to 50. Sunday should be sunny but cooler, close to 40 degrees. Again, 45 in Boston at 420.
Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We want it! That sound of Hollywood writers protesting during a strike that would last 148 days is a prime example of why 2023 was such a tough year for television and for media. Along with the actors and writers' strikes, the last 12 months have brought widespread layoffs across media companies, including here at NPR. And then there are the price hikes at streaming services and questions about whether cable TV can survive in an era of rampant cord cutting. But NPR TV critic Eric Degen says media's troubles this year offer clues about the most important questions companies will face next year. Hey, Eric. Hi. So, Eric, we heard there the sounds of protests from the strikes that hobbled the film and TV industry this year. And I'm assuming one big question for 2024 is how will entertainment get going again after so much downtime? Uh, Absolutely. But it's almost a deeper question than that, because what we also saw this year was a lot of important TV shows wrap up their series runs. So programs like Barry on HBO, The Crown on Netflix, and my pick for best TV show of the year, HBO Succession, they all ended in 2023. So I predict we're going to see a bit of a lull in high quality TV shows in the beginning of 2024, particularly among the streaming services, which have these long lead times for production, and they need to restock their lineups. And we also saw a lot of shows canceled unexpectedly during the strikes, which raises questions about diversity. I mean, shows that got canceled include programs starring and led by people from marginalized groups like ABC's Black-centered reboot of The Wonder Years or the LGBTQ-focused revamp of A League of Their Own on Prime Video. So far, I'm counting nearly a dozen shows featuring these kinds of characters and subjects that won't return for 2024. Eric, I want to stick with the streamers here for just a moment. We've already seen a bunch of them hike up their prices this year. What can we expect to see on that front in the new year? Uh, Unfortunately, more of the same. (laughs) These prices are going to go up as Wall Street continues to pressure the streaming services for profits. So on January 29th, for example, Amazon is going to charge $2.99 more per month for ad-free streaming. The trade magazine Variety reported that in October, seven top streaming services, including Disney+, Netflix, and Apple TV Plus raised their monthly fees an average of 23%. I mean, I think we're going to see also more bundling together of services, particularly if Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns HBO and CNN, pursues this deal that they're considering now to purchase or merge with Paramount Global, which owns cable channels like MTV and BT, along with the CBS network and Paramount Plus. How could a deal like that potentially affect what viewers see? Well, let's leave aside the question of whether it's an unfair monopoly, which is a big question, but let's imagine if Warner Brothers Discovery's Max streaming service, which has HBO and CNN and Discovery Networks, if they could add CBS shows and programs like Yellowstone. I mean, in a way, it's back to the future. Streaming services were supposed to free consumers from paying for cable channels they didn't watch, but it's sometimes cheaper or more convenient to bundle these platforms together, even in streaming. 
Eric, we've talked a lot about the challenges, but I want to end by asking you about the good. What are you looking forward to in 2024? Well, I'm really excited by new seasons from a lot of shows like HBO's True Detective, a new series from The Walking Dead universe with hero Rick Grimes, and a new Alien TV series all coming in 2024. That's NPR TV critic Eric Daggins. Thank you. Thank you. Athletes who want to be branding superstars usually need to do two things, win championships and avoid doing anything that upsets sponsors. Think Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, or Roger Federer, all masters of milk toast in front of the microphone. But in Colombia, the top athlete turned pitchman is a foul-mouthed free spirit who's never won the big one. Reporter John Otis has more. The crowd roars as Rigoberto Uran takes the stage at the Giro de Rigo, a massive cycling event that he hosts here in Colombia. In this cycling-mad nation, Uran, universally known as Rigo, is one of Colombia's top cyclists and salesmen. He sells his own brand of cycling gear called Go Rigo Go. He operates Rigo-themed restaurants, and he's a constant presence on TV, endorsing everything from mattresses to mobile phones. Ironically, he's done all this while never winning his sport's biggest races. Other Colombians have won the Tour de France, Giro d'Italia, and Vuelta a España, but Uran has fallen just short. He nearly won the Olympic road race in 2012, but instead took the silver medal. Uran tells NPR that his status as perennial bridesmaid is part of his appeal. I think lots of people identify with me because they want to win but don't quite make it, he says. Whether he's winning or losing, Uran always seems to be savoring the experience. Most athletes get really stressed and don't enjoy anything, he says, but to ride in the Tour de France is very special. Uran also stands out because in an era of scripted, risk-adverse celebrity athletes, he's unpredictable. He jokes around and sprinkles his speech with vulgarities. <laughs> Here he is on a Colombian talk show explaining how, during long races, cyclists relieve themselves from their bikes, peeing while pedaling 25 miles an hour. Uran's sense of humor helped him weather a tough childhood. He grew up in an Andean mountain town where, during the height of Colombia's guerrilla war, his father was killed by paramilitary gunmen. There was this pall of mourning over the whole town. That's Matt Rendell, who has written several books on Colombian cycling. And Rigo, somehow or other, he came out of that, and that has to be a kind of genius. Though just 14, Uran became his family's breadwinner. I did everything, Uran says. I sold lottery tickets. I worked on a bus. But when I began cycling, I was able to help my family even more. Indeed, he began winning prize money in local races. Eventually, he moved to Europe to ride for the top pro cycling teams. His finest hour came at the 2017 Tour de France, where he earned a spot on the podium as the race's runner-up. If his improbable story seems made for television, well, it has been. A TV series called Rigo is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. 
Now 36, Uran plans to retire from cycling next year to focus on his many business ventures. To promote the next generation of cyclists, he holds his annual Giro de Rigo. It's a wildly popular race in which amateurs, like Colombian dermatologist Andre Enciso, get to rub shoulders with their hero. Rigo is that person that you feel like you are his friend or his family. I took part in the latest Giro de Rigo, held last month near the Colombian town of Girardot. It drew 5,000 cyclists. Uran was the last rider to begin the race, but he zipped past nearly everyone. Okay, that was Rigo, and he just passed us here on the highway, going about three times faster than most of us. He may never win the Tour de France, but the guy can still go. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Girardot, Colombia. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. 2023 was a year when a lot of people pointed out that some important venues on the Internet aren't doing too well. How Platforms Die, coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. And then we meet some newly naturalized U.S. citizens who see voting in next year's elections as their responsibility. Boston Celtics host the Detroit Pistons tonight, 7.30 start time. Celts will be without one of their best players, as all-star forward Jalen Brown is out due to an injury. In the forecast overnight tonight, more rain, temperatures in the low 40s. And then for tomorrow, should have gray skies, showers off and on, temperatures in the mid-40s. 45 degrees now at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. As the year ends, wars rage on. One is Russia's siege of Ukraine. The tactics have been hit civilians, hit the electricity grid, hit hospitals. Another persists in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. I only can smell death. Dead body out of the rubbles. Nothing is the same. Is an end to either conflict within reach? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Luis Giovanni. Israeli forces have expanded their offensive in Gaza, bombarding cities, towns, and refugee camps. Dozens have been killed and thousands more have been forced to flee homes and shelters. Health officials in Hamas-run Gaza say so far more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war following the brutal October 7th Hamas attack inside Israel. In the region, the demand for humanitarian assistance is profound. Among those stepping up is World Central Kitchen, founded by world-renowned chef Jose Andres. He says relief will be in high demand for a long time. Let's hope the stability and tomorrow the ceasefire or a total temporary peace is achieved. But still the need will be huge for weeks until we stabilize the entire situation with food, water and medicines. Chef Jose Andres of World Central Kitchen. Intellectual property rights are at the heart of a legal battle between the New York Times and ChatGPT. NPR's Bobby Allen reports. The New York Times says ChatGPT was developed in part from millions of the paper's copyrighted articles used without permission or payment. 
The Times is seeking monetary damages and asking a court to force OpenAI to destroy the tool's underlying data set, which powers ChatGPT. OpenAI has defended its data harvesting under a legal doctrine known as fair use, which allows for copyrighted works to be used without permission for things like academic research or commentary. The case could have implications for both the artificial intelligence industry and online news publishers. The legal landscape for advanced AI tools remains murky, and the relationship between media outlets and AI companies has grown tense. Bobby Allen, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow closed up 53 points at 37,710. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state of Massachusetts has fined local housing agencies more than $4 million over the past four years for letting public housing units go empty without good reason. But until recently, the state either forgave the fines or never collected most of the money. Massachusetts Housing Secretary Ed Augustus says the state plans to make sure the fines are enforced going forward. Primarily, it's because we want to make sure that we know when units are offline, they're offline for good reason. So it's an accountability mechanism. Starting this year, the state says it's automatically deducting the fines from the money they allocate for public housing agencies. Employees at Mass General Brigham will be required to wear masks starting in January. That's due to increasing rates of COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses in the state. Patients and visitors to Mass General Brigham facilities are encouraged to wear masks as well. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute reinstated its mask mandate earlier this month. Two teenagers are dead, including a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old, following a shooting last night in Lynn. The gun violence incident was the second in as many nights. On Tuesday, three people were injured in a shooting. All are now in stable condition. Lynn's mayor issued a statement today offering condolences and condemning the violence. Investigations into the incidents are ongoing. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com. Snow is unlikely for the start of the new year, at least in greater Boston. More wet weather and warm temperatures in the forecast, though. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Leatham says temperatures are expected to drop. Um, But that's not until, um, you know, like I said, New Year's Eve into, into next week. Uh, where we see those more seasonable temperatures. Uh, as for like snow chances or anything like that, at this point in time, it doesn't look like we've got any snow in the forecast, at least in the, the uh, you know, the next couple days. However, Lethem says the northwestern part of the state, including the Berkshires, is the exception, with the possibility of at least some light snow. In the Boston area, we should have gray and damp weather with us for tomorrow. Again, temperatures tomorrow should be in the mid-40s. And then for Saturday, some clouds around, chance of showers close to 50. Sunday should be sunny, but finally, uh, sunny finally, but then cooler, close to about 40 degrees. In the Boston area, now 45 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is facing criticism after failing to mention slavery as a driving force behind the Civil War. This moment came during a presidential campaign stop in New Hampshire yesterday. She was asked about the Civil War by a voter there. NPR's Ashley Lopez is here with more details. Hi, Ashley. Hey there. So, Ashley, let's just start with what happened yesterday. What can you tell us? What exactly did Nikki Haley say? So in a nutshell, Haley was in this town hall style event and she was taking questions from voters in Berlin, New Hampshire. And during this Q&A portion, one member of the audience simply asked her, what was the cause of the United States Civil War? And here is what Haley said. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. She then got into it a little with that voter. She asked him what he thought the cause of the war was, and he pointed out, like, hey, I'm not running for president. And then she sort of doubled down on her answer. And once she was done, the audience member who asked the original question chimed in and said it was astonishing that she didn't mention slavery once in her answer. And Ashley, this is a moment that's gotten quite a bit of attention since this happened yesterday. What has the response been like? Well, I mean, of course, some of her opponents in the Republican presidential primary have chimed in and mostly pointing at the fact that this looks like a considerable gaffe for her campaign. Donald Trump, who is by far the front runner, his campaign said in a statement that it shows that Haley is, quote, not ready for prime time. And notably, President Biden commented on X, formerly known as Twitter, in response to a video of this exchange. And he said that, yes, the Civil War was indeed about slavery. Okay, and what about Nikki Haley herself? Since yesterday, has she had anything to say about all of this? Yeah, and she's done a couple of interviews since then. During an interview with a local radio station today, she addressed what happened. And here is some of what she said. I mean, of course, the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's that's the easy part of it. What I was saying was, what does it mean to us today? What it means to us today is about freedom. That's what that was all about. She basically said that, like, it goes without saying that the Civil War was caused by the South's refusal to end slavery. And she says she was mostly commenting on what she felt should be the lessons that should be drawn from the Civil War. And in a more recent campaign stop, she made similar remarks. She's also made some comments that she thinks the person who asked her about the Civil War was a Democratic Party plant, although she hasn't provided any evidence of that. But I'll just say it's a sign that the Haley team knows that this, like, has not been a good look for them. Ashley, I mean, what should we make of the fact that this fairly short exchange that happened in New Hampshire has gotten so much attention? I mean, it seems like it's something that could create some real problems for a campaign that's been on the rise. Yeah. I mean, well, I think a couple of things are happening here. For one, I mean, this is why, as a political candidate, you don't want to make even small mistakes during holidays or other times that the snow, the, the news is comparatively slow, right? A small part of this is really just like bad timing. And speaking of timing, the Iowa caucus is getting very close. It's on January 15th. And then the New Hampshire, and then New Hampshire holds its primary soon after that, right? So this is around the time that candidates are really going to start feeling pressure. Okay, last thing, as I think about this, I wonder how much of this uproar over these comments is just about who Nikki Haley is and her place in this Republican field. Yeah, totally. I think it's really important to note that Nikki Haley is the only woman of the major candidates still vying for the Republican nomination. She's also a woman of color and from the South. Haley has a complicated history when it comes to issues of race. As a woman of color, her campaign has been sort of angling to strike a different tone on on issues of race and identity, especially in comparison to her chief rival in the GOP primary, primary, former President Donald Trump. And she, when she was governor of South Carolina, she had a Confederate flag removed from the 
Capitol grounds following an anti-Black mass shooting at a Black church in Charleston. But at the same time, you know, we have to remember that she's running for the nomination in a party that has been sounding more like Trump when it comes to issues of race and the country's history with slavery and white supremacy. NPR's Ashley Lopez, thanks as always. Yeah, thank you. Much of the country is enjoying above average temperatures heading into the New Year's weekend, and 2024 could bring some relief when it comes to winter heating bills. People who use natural gas to stay warm are likely to enjoy lower costs for heat this winter than last. Those who rely on electricity or oil to heat their homes might not be so lucky. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with the economic weather forecast. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. Winter heating bills were up last year. What's in store this winter? It is a mixed bag. Uh, it depends on where you live and how you heat your home. Uh, natural gas prices, as you mentioned, are a lot lower this year than last. So the Energy Department estimates that on average, natural gas customers will spend about $160 less to heat their homes this winter than they did last year. That's a big deal because natural gas is the most popular heating fuel. It's used by almost half the homes in the country. And it's already the cheapest form of heating, and now it's getting cheaper. Electric heat, on the other hand, which is the second most popular, is expected to cost about the same as it did a year ago. And oil heat, unfortunately, is likely to cost more this winter, about $130 more for the typical household. Oil heat was already the most expensive form of heating, and it's not very common except in the Northeast. But people in the Northeast may have to burn more oil this winter because they're expecting somewhat colder temperatures than last year. So potential savings for a lot of people this winter. Others may end up paying more. On balance, how are people coping with these energy bills? Even where heating bills are falling, they're generally not going back to where they were before the pandemic. And there are growing signs that a lot of families are feeling squeezed. Last year, a record 8 million households received energy assistance from the federal government. Uh, that money is distributed through state energy offices. And applications suggest the need may be even greater this year. Mark Wolf, who represents energy assistance directors around the country, says about one in six households have now fallen behind on paying their utility bills. Ordinarily, people who fall behind in the wintertime might be able to catch up in the summer. But, you know, the last two summers have been really hot in much of the country. So Wolf says people had to run their air conditioners more, and that costs more money. The result is that families are further behind on the utility bills than they were at the beginning of the year. Right now, Wolf says overdue utility bills total around $20 billion. That's up from about $12 billion before the pandemic. Now, most utilities won't cut off your heat during the winter, even if you do fall behind on your bills. But unless people work out a payment plan, uh, they could be in danger of shutoffs come spring. Is there any other help in the pipeline? Not yet. You know, in recent years, the federal government did offer a lot of financial aid to families that wasn't directly tied to heating bills, but did help to provide a cushion. Uh, that's all gone now, whether we're talking about pandemic relief payments or the expanded child tax credit. And what's more, federal spending on that energy assistance itself is set to drop by about $2 billion this year unless Congress comes through with some supplemental funding. Now, the Biden administration has asked lawmakers to set aside an extra $1.6 billion for energy assistance. But like so many other spending requests, that is stuck in legislative limbo. And Wolf says there's no guarantee. So if we don't get digital funds, it's an issue of math. We'll have to cut back about one and a half million households from the program and have a deep impact on low-income families who have to pay these bills. Without that additional funding, a lot of states will also face the prospect of cutting energy assistance during the hot summer months. So people who do get a break on their gas bills this winter might want to set some of that money aside. And those who are stuck paying more for heating oil may want to pray for an early spring. 
NPR Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The issue of abortion is mobilizing voters across the country, and Democrats have largely been the ones to benefit. They've been pushing to codify abortion access into state laws after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Now political strategists from both parties are zeroing in on the state of Arizona. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports. Arizonans looking to expand access to abortion in the Grand Canyon state are already gathering outside courthouses. They were there because the state Supreme Court is weighing abortion restrictions, but they're not just protesting outside the court. They're hard at work mobilizing to get a ballot initiative that would enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. We knew we needed to do something for 2024. That's Chris Love, a senior advisor of Planned Parenthood of Arizona, one of the organizations behind the initiative. We are well ahead of where we anticipated we would be, and we are on track to, you know, producing about 800,000 signatures when all is said and done by July 3rd. If approved by voters, the constitutional amendment would override whatever conclusion the state Supreme Court comes to. That's the point, right? Our court shouldn't be deciding any of these things. These decisions should be between a pregnant person and their trusted medical provider. Those on the other side are gearing up too. Groups like Students for Life of America who want to restrict abortion access are preparing to fight the efforts in Arizona. These young people can be reached um, and they can vote pro-life, but we have to speak to them and be real with them about what's really at stake. That's Kristen Hawkins, Executive Director of Students for Life of America. Hawkins said they plan to increase their presence on college campuses in the state and target ads at younger voters. Young voters tend to favor abortion rights, but recent polling shows that the issue can still motivate young conservatives. Far too often, the Republican pundits and even Republican campaigns, they just fail to reach out to this demographic, thinking that it's a lost cause. By winning um, a couple more percentage points of young people, Um, That can shift the entire election. And that can certainly be the case in the swing state of Arizona. In 2020, President Biden won the state by just 10,000 votes. And key Senate and House races that could determine who controls Congress will be on the ballot. And specifically, this path runs straight through Arizona. That's Danny Wang. She's the deputy director for campaign communications at Emily's List, which helps elect Democratic women who support abortion rights. She says voters are eager to defend abortion protections. I think they're um, incredibly invigorated to go out to the ballot box because it doesn't matter if you live in a state where abortion is constitutionally protected or if you live in Arizona where the fate rests on this upcoming election. Abortion-related initiatives have proved to be a major voter mobilizer. Democrats have seen these wins in states like Montana, Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio over the last two years. And organizers hope Arizona is next. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, we'll remember trailblazing driver Paula Murphy. She made a name for herself in a sport dominated by men. And later, for the first time, China has exported more cars than any other country. It's a case study for the electric vehicle revolution. These stories and much more still to come. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. Boston Celtics host the Detroit Pistons tonight, 7.30 start time at the Garden. Celtics will be without one of their best players as all-star forward Jalen Brown is out due to an injury. In the forecast, some of the rain should move out tonight. Still some showers, though. Temperatures in the low 40s, just a little bit lower than where they are now. Tomorrow, back to the mid-40s with gray skies. Showers returning. Not quite as damp as today has been, though. Weekend should start up with clouds on Saturday, warming to about 50. At least some sunshine on Sunday, the final day of the year. 45 degrees in Boston at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals. With a curated selection of organic groceries, natural body care and supplements, and bulk refillery. CambridgeNaturals.com I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism is essential across our community and in your own daily life. Listener support keeps WBUR going. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give by Sunday, December 31st at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. 2023 was the year a lot of people pointed out that some important places on the internet are getting worse. Federal lawsuits accused Amazon and Google of exploiting their monopolies. Streaming services offered less content for more money. Reddit users protested a new policy. Social media networks filled with ads and recommendations and stores we didn't ask for. And then there's whatever is happening at X, formerly known as Twitter, under Elon Musk. One man put a name to this process. We cannot say the term on public radio, but you can think of it as worsening or platform decay. The New York Times went with the euphemism and junkification. Tech journalist and science fiction writer Corey Doctorow coined the term we cannot say. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. What is a platform that, to your eyes, exemplifies this trend? And you can't say Twitter because that's too easy. No, I think Facebook's a good example. You know, Facebook went through the the whole uh, life cycle of platform decay. They started off by offering a really good deal to their end users. You know, they, they said, hey, leave MySpace, come to Facebook. It's just like MySpace, except we only show you the things that you asked to see and we'll never spy on you. And then once those users were locked in, you know, because once you're in a place with all your friends, it's really hard to leave. They started to take away some of that good stuff they gave them and they handed it to advertisers and publishers. To the advertisers, they said, you know, we were lying when we said we weren't going to spy on these guys. We're totally spying on them. Here's um, all the data you need to target them for ads that we're not going to charge you much money for. And to the publishers, they said, we were also lying when we said we'd only show them the stuff they asked to see. And then, you know, once the publishers and the advertisers were locked in well, they took away those surpluses. 
the ads got more expensive. Publishers had to put more and more of their content, not just to get recommended, but even to be shown to the people who subscribe them. And that's the final stage, the stage where there's just like only the residual value left on the platform that the platform owner thinks will keep the users and the business customers they bring in stuck to the platform. And that's when, you know, we're at the beginning of the end. You use the term platform decay, which suggests this is a well-established arc. Can you just, in the simplest layman's terms, describe what this process is? Yeah, it's uh, a platform being unfettered from competition because they were able to buy their competitors or use predatory pricing to keep them out. They bring in users, they offer them really good deals, and then they alter the deal and they use the fact that digital realms have a lot of flexibility you can change the deal in tiny ways that are hard to notice uh, although they add up over time and also because these companies when they get so big and concentrated they capture their regulators and so things that would otherwise be a violation of privacy rights or labor rights or consumer rights they get away with so i could imagine a few potential solutions like one is all of the users migrating to some other platform another would be an antitrust lawsuit like some of the ones we've seen is there something that you think actually works really well to fight this? Well, one thing we could do is stop them from buying their competitors or using predatory pricing. There's been a bunch of law action from the agencies on this. The DOJ and the FTC have taken it on. Their European counterparts, even China, have all been paying attention to these questions. We have to make it legal to do to Facebook and Apple and Google and all these other tech platforms, the things they did to the companies that came before them. You know, there was a New York Times op-ed that basically said what you call the degradation of these websites is actually just old people aging out of an internet that has always catered to young people, that millennials and Gen Xers just don't get it anymore. And Gen Z is still having fun online on platforms that might barely register with you and me. What do you make of that critique? Well, look, I turned 50 a couple of years ago. I got doxxed by the AARP. They tracked me down and gave me that <laughs> card that allows me to complain that things used to be better when I was young. Uh, but I'll stipulate that the way that I want to use the internet is not the way my 15-year-old wants to use the internet. What I'm concerned about is when she wants to leave the platform that she's on because it's not serving her either, will she have an easy way to escape or will she find herself stuck to it? And you're just not going to convince me that what happened between my generation and my kids' generation is that they suddenly discovered that they enjoyed being ripped off. Cory Doctorow, his latest book is called The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Each year, hundreds of thousands of people become newly naturalized U.S. citizens, giving them the ability to vote in federal elections. NPR's Elena Moore takes us to Arizona and introduces us to some of these new Americans. They see voting in next year's elections as an important responsibility. It's a sunny and warm December day in Phoenix, and outside the Sandra Day O'Connor Courthouse, there's a lot to celebrate. I feel so proud, and I feel so good. I feel so happy. That's Happy Johnson. She's an immigrant from Nigeria who just finished taking part in a naturalization ceremony. Now she's a U.S. citizen, and right after making it official, she went down the hall and registered to vote. That's one of my rights. For years since I'm here, I've never voted, so it's a wonderful opportunity, and I'll make good use of it. It's also a big day for Karen Perez. She's wearing a sequined American flag dress. Can you see on the flag? <laughs> Perez, who came from Venezuela, sees voting as a duty. You do select a president that could rebuild or create a better country for the United States. That's why you have to vote, because if you don't vote, you can't complain. 
When voting, she says a top issue for her will be the treatment of immigrants. No matter what country they are from, Central America, Latin America, to the East, because sometimes some rights are very difficult. For new voters like Paris, they're registering to vote in a state that is expected to play a crucial role in the 2024 election. In 2020, President Biden won Arizona by just over 10,000 votes, an indication of how close the state can be. But new citizen voters becoming a voting block that campaigns actually seek out is another story. The likability of a campaign spending money to target them and get them to vote is, is low. That's Democratic strategist Tony Valdivinos. He told NPR it often takes years to go from being a registered voter to being a reliable voter to being targeted by campaigns. If you are one of those voters that just joined the voting ranks or just became naturalized, like please turn in a ballot regardless of who you're voting for so that you can be seen as a valuable voter so you can get that information. Back outside the courthouse, most people are using this day just to savor the milestone. Standing near a fountain is Olga Aguirre. She's wearing a shirt that says USA. It's something she bought even before passing the citizenship test. I bought it regardless of if I passed or not, but now I'll wear it because I'm proud to live in this country and to be a part of this country. Standing next to her is her younger sister, Nancy Tafoya, who became a citizen when she was just a kid. She tears up thinking about her family members getting the same opportunity. They struggled to come here, and then now they have more opportunities. She can go to Mexico and come back whenever she wants, and yeah, so it's nice. Once the ceremony was done, Tafoya says she told her sister right away to go register to vote, and she did. Now, Agira plans to cast her ballot next year. She tells NPR that even though it's just one vote, she believes it can make a difference. Elena Moore, NPR News, Phoenix. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From the estate of Joan B. Croc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday evening. Some of the rain should move out tonight. Still some showers around, though. Temperatures in the low 40s. Tomorrow it's back to the mid-40s with gray skies and showers returning. Not quite as wet as today has been, though. This is WBUR. It's 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. 
I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Artificial intelligence is now a key tool for people working on solutions to climate change, including preventing wildfires. These are intelligent assistants. It's kind of like Siri, but for burn managers. The role of AI in tackling global warming coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, federal border agents across the southern U.S. border had one of their busiest years this year, a trend that should continue into 2024. And prescription drug shortages are a persistent problem, especially for low-cost generics. It's the same issues that we've been dealing with for many years, especially with these older generic drugs that are having fewer and fewer manufacturers making them. We'll look at what causes the shortages and what can be done about them. These stories and Wall Street numbers, along with a forecast, are coming up. It's one past five. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A member of the Israeli War Cabinet is warning that the war in Gaza could spill into a broader regional conflict. NPR's Nita Kravinsky reports Iranian-backed militants and Israeli forces continue to trade fire across Israel's northern border with Lebanon. As Israel forges ahead with its ground and air offensives in Gaza, violence on Israel's northern border continues as well. Today, Israel's military says it intercepted a drone crossing over that border, and Israel and Hezbollah have exchanged fire every day this week. Former Israeli defense minister and war cabinet member Benny Gantz told reporters yesterday that if attacks from Hezbollah continue, Israel would act to remove the group from the border. He says time is running out for a political solution. And, he says, if the world and the Lebanese government don't act to stop the shooting, Israel's military will. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is now acknowledging that the Civil War was about slavery. The Republican presidential hopeful faced swift criticism after making no mention of it when asked about the cause of the war during a town hall in New Hampshire last night. Haley attempted to clarify her comments today during a separate event with voters in the state. It's a given that the Civil War was about slavery. I've lived that all my life. But where are we going with that? What are we going to do with that? Are we going to make sure that never happens again? Yes. And what are we going to do to protect people's freedoms so that we know that that will never happen again? Haley is in a distant second place in the Republican race in New Hampshire behind former President Donald Trump. A federal judge has approved Georgia's revised political maps, ruling the new district lines drawn by Republicans complied with his order to add new majority black districts. Sam Greenglass from member station WABE reports the plaintiffs in the case say the new maps still dilute the power of black voters. 
The decision is a win for Republicans, who managed to mostly preserve their partisan advantage while adding the new majority black districts demanded by the court. The maps add seven new majority black districts for the state legislature and a new majority black congressional seat. In exchange, Republicans eliminated a majority minority district that voted for Democrats to keep their 9-5 advantage in Congress. The plaintiffs argued that these districts were also protected by the Voting Rights Act. U.S. District Judge Steve Jones, an appointee of President Obama, ultimately decided not to weigh in on that, saying it was a question for another case. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Auditor's Office is reporting a drop in the amount of money that was stolen from the state in the last fiscal year. Auditor Diana DiZoglio says nearly 800 cases of public benefits fraud were discovered that totaled more than $12.3 million lost. That's over $1 million less than what was stolen in fiscal year 2022. The state says it conducted more than 40 percent more fraud investigations in fiscal 23 than it did the year before. Maine lobstermen say that new electronic monitoring requirements are violating their constitutional right to privacy. Earlier this month, the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission started to require lobstermen to install equipment that tracks their boat's location every minute that it's in motion. But the Maine Lobstering Union is asking the state to delay the tracking until next fishing season. Union's director, Virginia Olson, says monitoring the lobstermen is a violation because many use their boats for purposes other than fishing. And those uh, one-minute pings really feel like a warrantless tracking, a GPS without a warrant. The Maine Department of Marine Resources is not commenting on the request for a delay. Cape Cod's lakes and ponds see more than 1.5 million visits each year. That's according to the early results of an economic study by the group Freshwater Initiative. The report finds homes that are closer to ponds that have better water quality have higher property values. Barnstable County Commissioner Ron Bergstrom says people should not need a financial incentive to care about restoring the region's ponds. I'm struck by having to put a price tag on all of this, saying, well, if you clean up your water, you'll have a 9% increase on your property value. Unfortunately, that seems to be the trend. We have to convince people to clean the environment. Cyanobacteria caused closures at several Cape Cod ponds in 2023. And the state announced today that it's now accepting grant applications to help pay for large-scale capital projects at early education and care programs. The Department of Early Education and Care has $4 million to distribute. The funding is directed to programs that serve low-income populations. There's a child care shortage in Massachusetts with a sector yet to rebound from the pandemic. In the forecast, overnight tonight, clouds, temperatures in the low 40s. Tomorrow, more clouds, some showers with temperatures in the mid-40s once again. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heifer International, where people can donate animal gifts like goats, chickens, or sheep to struggling families to help them create sustainable futures. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been another record year for migration at the U.S. southern border. According to Customs and Border Protection, more than 2.5 million migrants arrived there this year, and that's just through September. Migrants attempt to cross at many stretches along the border, but nowhere is busier year-round than El Paso, Texas. Reporter Angela Kocherga of member station KTEP has our story. On a late fall evening just before sunset, 
U.S. Border Patrol agent Fidel Baca prepares for another busy night. We're on a stretch of desert borderland dotted with scrub brush near the Texas-New Mexico state line. A 32-foot steel border fence towers over much of the terrain. Before long, agents spot someone on the structure. So there'll be somebody up on top of the fence wanting to get agents' attention. Once agents head that direction, then they'll send the group some, uh, in another place. Some migrants climb over the border barrier. Others scale nearby Mount Cristo Rey, which hugs the border with Mexico. Agent Baca says they're guided by experienced smugglers. A lot of these smugglers, they're generational. So they, they've been out here for, for many, many years. They've picked up on the way we work. They uh, adapt to our, our technology and whatever we, the challenges we present to them. So we have to adapt to whatever changes they present as well. This remains one of the busiest areas for Border Patrol, with nearly 430,000 people attempting to cross in 2023. We arrive on the scene as agents take three men into custody. They suspect one is a smuggling guide. He seems to know the drill and quickly takes off his shoelaces before asked. The other two are from other parts of Mexico. I ask how hard it was to cross the border. It was further and harder than I thought, says this man who would only give his first name, Martin. He's from Mexico City and hopes to find work in the U.S. Nearly half of those apprehended by Border Patrol on the southwest border were from Mexico and Central America. The rest are from a mix of other countries. While some sneak across the border, others turn themselves in seeking asylum. The Border Patrol spends a lot of time processing those migrants. Afterwards, they're often released to await immigration hearings, like this large group in downtown El Paso in September. This year, again, the vast majority were from Venezuela, like 18-year-old Adrianelli Nava, who arrived with her toddler. She was told the border was open, Nava says, but when she arrived, was quickly taken into custody by Border Patrol. Following her release, like other migrants, she planned to move on and was trying to get to Chicago, where she has a relative. All of this has led Texas Governor Greg Abbott to build up his controversial Operation Lone Star border crackdown. He's added miles of razor wire along the Rio Grande in El Paso, a floating barrier made of buoys in Del Rio, and deployed more state troopers. El Paso County Commissioner David Stout acknowledges the increase in migrant crossing strains the county. The Democrat says repeated Republican claims that the border is wide open and chaotic are simply not true. We have, uh, in this country, spent billions and billions of dollars in additional boots on the ground, more wall. For somebody to say that we have open borders, it's just ridiculous. But I thought two groups over there. And Out in the field, Agent Baca points to a variety of tools to keep an eye on the border, including new monitoring technology. There are 24 autonomous surveillance towers in the El Paso region, now using artificial intelligence to help identify whether a migrant or an animal is crossing the border. So this camera, the more you use it, the smarter it gets. Uh, it has a radar attached to it, so it detects movement at a certain radius. This year, Border Patrol agents in El Paso alone rescued nearly 600 people. At least 149 migrants died, nearly half from the sweltering summer heat. Some drowned. On this night, we hear agents at another location with an injured woman. The woman broke her ankle trying to cross the border at night with a group of migrants. We have stopped. 
Despite the danger, driven by desperation or hope, migrants keep coming, and border enforcement is once again a top issue heading into a presidential election year. For NPR News, I'm Angela Cocherigan, El Paso. All sorts of companies and researchers have embraced artificial intelligence, and that includes people working on climate solutions. Julia Simon from NPR's Climate Desk is here to explain how AI is being used to tackle global warming. Hi, Julia. Hello. So, Julia, climate change means more wildfires, and I understand that there are some companies and researchers who think AI might be able to help out with that? Yes, one way researchers hope AI can help prevent big wildfires is with something called controlled burns. That's when native tribes, people from the Forest Service, utilities set controlled fires to remove excess brush, vegetation, basically removing fuel for megafires. Okay, but of course, if you do not plan out that controlled fire correctly, it seems like something that could spin out of control, right? Exactly. Teams of so-called burn managers, they need lots of data to keep those fires safe. They need to know about the wind, the moisture in the vegetation, how much vegetation. Yolanda Gill is director of strategic AI at the Information Science Institute at USC. To help prevent controlled burns from getting out of control, they're working on an AI-powered tool. These are intelligent assistants. It's kind of like Siri, but for burn managers. Huh. Okay. Intelligent assistants are like Apple, Siri, or I take it Amazon's Alexa. Help me understand this. What would Siri for burn managers look like? Yeah, well, Siri uses AI, right? When I ask it a question, it combs through a bunch of data, feeds me back an answer. Gil and their team are making a Siri-like assistant for those people making controlled fires. It works like this. The burn manager will say, what model would be good? I want to do a controlled fire in this particular area. The Siri-like system would then figure out the weather patterns for that area, the topography, vegetation, and come back and say, here's a potential burn model, a way to make a controlled fire that's safe. Gill says the hope is that by giving AI-powered assistance to more agencies, utilities, they can make lots more safe, controlled burns. Okay, Julia, tell us about another way that AI can help us in climate solutions. From solar panels to electric vehicles, many climate solutions require minerals. Think lithium, copper, cobalt. The world needs a lot more of these minerals than our current supplies. The question is where to find them. This is where companies and the U.S. government are using AI to help. They're using AI to sift through big data sets to better identify what places across the world have potential for mining these minerals because exploring for minerals, it's really expensive. These mining companies are finding that using AI can save a lot of time and money. And Julie, I understand you've brought us one more use of AI to tackle climate change. Tell us about it. I do. It involves methane, this really potent planet heating pollution. Antoine Half is chief analyst at Kairos, a climate analytics firm. He says for years, people knew methane emissions were rising in the atmosphere, but... We had no idea where methane was coming from. We had an understanding of the climate risk, but there was no understanding of the sources and therefore very limited scope for actions. 
Then they started using AI to interpret all this data. They now track on a daily basis where the big leaks and other releases of methane are coming from. They're being This AI data is used by the UN to verify if companies' reports on methane are accurate. NPR's Julia Simon. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much. The world of motorsports has lost the race car driver once known as the fastest woman on wheels. Record-breaking trailblazer Paula Murphy died last week. From driving a jet car across the Utah desert to racing nitro-powered cars on a drag strip, Murphy made a name for herself in a sport dominated by men. Murphy first visited a track while living in California in the 1950s. Some work friends offered to take her to her first race. Here she is in a documentary released earlier this year called Paula Murphy Undaunted. My friend said, you should come out to the races with us. I said, no, I don't think so. I'm not really interested. So finally, I, they taught me into going. And I watched and I said, this has got to be the most boring thing I've ever seen. It's like watching the grass grow. But once she learned there were women's races happening, she had a change of heart about races being boring. She borrowed another driver's car and got on the track, and from there, she was hooked. Murphy honed her racing skills, landing first-place finishes up and down the West Coast. An early turning point came for her when she and fellow driver Barbara Nyland took a cross-country ride. Their goal? To set new speed records. Surrounded by a group of Los Angeles well-wishers, Mrs. Barbara Nyland and Miss Paula Murphy are ready with their Avanti to take off in an attempt to establish a new cross-country record to New York City. The duo went on to set four transcontinental speed records. Murphy was also the first woman to earn a license to drive nitro-powered cars. That's a class of cars designed for drag racing. She drove what's known as a funny car, ripping down short tracks and head-to-head -head races at over 200 miles per hour. And now the race between the two American funny cars. Don the Jew Schumacher and Miss Paula Murphy. In 1964, Murphy set the record for the fastest land speed ever achieved by a female driver. Strapped into a jet-powered car, she zoomed across the Utah desert in a car that wasn't even designed for a driver of her size. They had the stuffed pillows behind my back because I couldn't reach the pedals, so I'm up there flapping in the breeze, not hiding down behind the big windshield. Her career had an early end following a 300-mile-an-hour crash in the early 70s, but record-breaking achievements earned Paula Murphy a spot in the Motorsports Hall of Fame. Paula Murphy died last week. She was 95 years old. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up, a look back at the year in artificial intelligence, James Webb Space Telescope research, and climate change. And a little bit later, the L.A. Dodgers have secured a 25-year-old player who just became the highest paid pitcher in the MLB. These stories are much more still to come. Modest gains for the Dow today. It was up more than a tenth of a percent. S&P barely budged. Same thing for the Nasdaq. It lost a small fraction today. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals. With over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples, cambridgenaturals.com. 
and the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org slash cars. Join us Monday, January 8th at City Space for a conversation with Jack Zhang, chef and stay-at-home dad, whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Should have gray and damp weather with us until just about Sunday, New Year's Eve day. Tonight, cloudy, just a little bit cooler than it has been. Overcast tomorrow with some showers, temperatures in the mid-40s again. Weekend should start off with clouds on Saturday, then turn sunny on Sunday. As of now, it's looking like we should have a little bit of clearing for New Year's Eve Sunday night. 45 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Prescription drug shortages have been plaguing the country. Low-cost generics, painkillers, anesthetics, and chemotherapies have been especially hard hit. But what is driving those shortages? NPR pharmaceutical correspondent Sidney Lupkin sought some answers at one shuttered factory that new owners are trying to reopen. Stephen Coventry spent 20 years at the Acorn Pharmaceutical Factory in Decatur, Illinois, where he worked his way up to operations manager. It closed last winter when the company shut down its four manufacturing facilities, recalling dozens of generic drug products. In Decatur, it laid off 400 employees. Coventry went back to the factory last summer because new owners hired him to bring it back to life. It was a surreal scene. Coffee mugs were left on tabletops, uh, personal items. You know, it was kind of like a ghost town and and a little, little sad to go through and see, you know, people's lives just basically upended. He says they used to make 100 products there, and he's glad to be back. It's kind of like home. It's where I grew up and learned, and I was really driven to see see the site come back up, to bring it back up to its glory days of what it was in the past. But the shutdown caused some new drug shortages and worsened others. When Americans think of drug prices, they usually think of the fact that their medicines are too expensive. But when it comes to generics, the opposite problem is true. They're too cheap. Here's Rena Conti, a professor at the Boston University Questrom School of Business. For off-patent generic drugs, especially those used in the hospital setting, Americans actually pay lower prices than Europe does. Generic drug makers compete with each other to offer hospital purchasers the lowest price. Over time, prices get so low that it doesn't always make good business sense for the companies to keep making some drugs. So they stop. Sometimes they go out of business. The last few years have been rough for the generics industry. 
Acorn shut down, Mallinckrodt filed for bankruptcy, generics giant Teva is planning to cut many generics from its portfolio. Here's Valerie Jensen, Associate Director for Drug Shortages at the Food and Drug Administration. It's the same issues that we've been dealing with for many years, especially with these older generic drugs that are having fewer and fewer manufacturers making them. There isn't a lot of buffer when something goes wrong on a manufacturing line. With dwindling redundancy in the drug supply chain, a weather event like the tornado that ripped through a Pfizer factory earlier this year can wreak havoc on an already fragile system. On top of that, the bargain basement prices don't encourage manufacturers to invest in new equipment and other things that would keep quality high and avert recalls and shutdowns. So the country winds up with drug shortages. Here's Rena Conti from Boston University again. Economics is causing this problem, and this problem is longstanding. We've been dealing with periodic and more concerningly persistent shortages in drugs for the better part of a decade. She says the economics have to change to get a more resilient drug supply. Right now, these shortages are disruptive and leave hospitals scrambling. Aaron Fox is a hospital pharmacist who oversees purchasing drugs, medication safety, and more for the University of Utah Health System. Like her peers across the country, she was caught off guard by Acorn's demise last winter. We actually got an email from uh, our representative, and he just said, hey, we just walked in today. We learned that we're closing. Everyone has to leave today. So it was it was very abrupt. The company went bankrupt in February 2023 after operating at a loss and failing to get acquired by a company that would cover its liabilities. About two months later, it recalled all the products it made. There was nothing wrong with the drugs and they weren't expired, but no one was left at Acorn to answer the phone or initiate a recall if there was a problem. Staffers at the University of Utah Health had to log an extra 250 hours right away to deal with the fallout, taking Acorn products off shelves and finding replacements. Products included things like sufentanil, an opioid that's often used in epidurals during labor and delivery. Acorn was also the only supplier of dimercaparol, an injectable antidote for lead poisoning. There are oral alternatives, but some patients are too sick to take them. A few months after Acorn shut down, Rising Pharmaceuticals acquired the former Acorn factory in Illinois. It plans to manufacture several of the generic products Acorn used to make there. Here's Ira Berenger, Rising Pharmaceuticals' chief operating officer. Our intention is to really focus on those products of greatest need in the U.S. pharma marketplace and bring those back on priority. These include an injectable antibiotic, an anesthetic, and an anti-nausea medication. It also includes several former Acorn eyedrop products in short supply. But getting the factory back up and running is tricky because the water, air, and mechanical systems had been shut down for so long. Normally, those systems run continuously. That takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. And once a facility is shut down, it means all those systems have to be revalidated and so that's the process that we're going through right now to bring this facility back up into commercial production. He said Rising hopes the factory will be making products by the second half of 2024. But what will keep Rising from going the same way Acorn did? Behringer says Rising is being cost-conscious and taking its time so that once the factory begins making generics, it can go the distance. Here's Aaron Fox again. It's really hard to know if, if they'll be able to make it a success or not. Um, I, I hope they do. I hope they get support from people that want to keep manufacturing in the U.S. 
but we'll just have to see how it works out. The Biden administration says it's taking steps to mitigate drug shortages, including expanding its use of the Defense Production Act to bolster domestic manufacturing of medicines deemed critical for a national defense. It's investing $35 million in domestic manufacturing of key starting materials for sterile injectable drugs. But the economic problems of the industry run deep, and they likely won't be solved overnight. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. When you look up at the night sky, what do you see? A map that was recently discovered in Italy provides a glimpse at what people thousands of years ago might have seen. Researchers at Italy's National Institute for Astrophysics discovered a celestial map believed to be from between 1800 to 400 BC. That is over 2,400 years ago, making it one of the oldest celestial maps ever discovered in Italy. The map is made of white stone and is about the size of a car tire. It's believed to have been made with a hammer and some sort of chisel. It's made up of 29 engravings spread out across the circular stones. Researchers used a software program that was able to match the markings to stars we see today, and they say it's pretty accurate. The constellations of Orion, Scorpius, and Pleiades were marked on the stone, leading researchers to believe that this was no accident and that these carvings were possibly used to keep track of the changing seasons. But scientists say there's one star in the engraving that does not match our current night sky, and they're not entirely sure why. They speculate it might have once been a star that produced a supernova, an explosion of the star during its final stages of life, and they think that could have resulted in a black hole. Scientists say that more research is needed, and despite that bit of uncertainty, we still think this discovery is out of this world. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, what it means for China that for the first time it's exported more cars than any other country. And a new documentary celebrates television art educator Mark Kistler and how millions of children learn the power of drawing from him and his show on PBS. This is WBUR, staying pretty raw through the nighttime tonight. Shouldn't be too much chillier than it is right now. It's 44 degrees, should make it down to the low 40s tonight. And then for tomorrow, more rain, although less than we had today, should be in the mid-40s for high. Weekend is looking like a mixed bag so far. Should be cloudy on Saturday, the chance of showers close to 50 degrees. And then Sunday should be sunny, finally, but cooler, close to 40 degrees. The time is 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. We'll reflect on the year in pop culture, including one very pink and unforgettable smash hit. Hi, Barbie. 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 Yep, the Barbie movie and more big moments next time here and now. 
Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Mexican immigration officials today continued to clear out a migrant camp on the banks of the Rio Grande just across from Brownsville, Texas. The Biden administration is pressing Mexico to do more to stop the dramatic surge of asylum seekers crossing the U.S. southern border, even as a new caravan of thousands is trekking through Mexico toward the U.S. Once migrants arrive, many are encountering legal trouble. Details from Texas Public Radio's Marianne Navarro. Data analyzed by the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse shows detention stays for migrants arrested by U.S. Customs and Border Protection and Customs and Immigration Enforcement increased from an average of around 44 days in October to about 52 days in December. Those arrested by CBP and ICE remained in detention for roughly around the same number of days in October. Since then, the average length of stays for those arrested by CBP has increased, while detention time for those arrested by ICE slightly dropped. Track reports the total number of migrants in detention centers across the country has remained relatively high at around 36,000 as of mid-December. I'm Marianne Navarro in San Antonio. Mortgage giant Freddie Mac is reporting the average long-term mortgage rate has fallen to 66 It's the ninth straight week the rate has dipped, and it now stands at its lowest level since the month of May. You might have those plush dolls called squishmallows around your home. NPR's Scott Horsley reports that China's Alibaba company is being sued for counterfeit versions of them. The toy company behind the popular plush toys known as Squishmallows can proceed with its lawsuit against China's Alibaba company for allegedly selling counterfeit versions. A federal judge denied Alibaba's request to have the suit dismissed. NPR's Scott Horsley on Wall Street. The Dow gained 53 points to close at 37,710. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Environmental advocates say 2024 will be a critical year for the state to ensure it will meet its 2030 climate goals. They're calling on lawmakers to pass measures to help state the state slash greenhouse gas emissions and create more clean energy. Here's WBUR's Miriam Wasser. Lawmakers in the House and Senate say they hope to pass a big climate bill in 2024. And advocates with the Environmental League of Massachusetts have some thoughts about what should be in it. They want the state to make it easier to permit and build renewable energy projects and power lines. They want the state to double its offshore wind targets. And they want to see policies aimed at electrifying public transit and building EV charging infrastructure. Amy Boyd-Rabin is the vice president of policy for the group. So this legislative session needs to be the moment where Massachusetts makes the jump from ambition to implementation. The group says it also supports efforts to electrify heating and cooking appliances in buildings. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley is walking back comments she made on the campaign trail in New Hampshire. During a town hall in Berlin yesterday, an audience member asked the former South Carolina governor about the origins of the Civil War. She did not include slavery in her answer. This morning, Haley told a New Hampshire radio show, of course the Civil War was about slavery, which she called a stain on America. A program begun in Boston to increase access to public library materials is expanding in Massachusetts. 
The Browse Borrow Board Program will now include passengers on the Pioneer Valley Transit Authority out in the Springfield area. The program allows riders to borrow e-books and audiobooks from the state library system at bus stops. The pilot program goes through September of 2024. And the Cape Ann Museum is hoping to ride the momentum of a record-breaking year with plans for some major renovations. WBR's Andrea Shea has more. The exhibition Edward Hopper and Cape Ann broke attendance records at the Gloucester Institution. It attracted more people during its 12-week run than the Cape Ann Museum would usually see in a year. Now director Oliver Barker wants to build on that success with the largest renovation project in the 148-year-old museum's history. It will mean that we will have a state-of-the-art facility downtown where we can continue to mount wonderful exhibitions like the Edward Hopper exhibition that 36,500 visitors so enjoyed this past summer. If the museum hits its fundraising goals, construction would begin in 2025. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. Some of the rain should move out. Still some showers tonight, though. Temperatures in the low 40s. Tomorrow's back in the mid-40s. Gray skies and showers returning, although not quite as wet as today has been. Weekend should start up with clouds on Saturday, warming to about 50. At least some sunshine on Sunday, the final day of the year. Temperatures about 40. 44 now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. I'm Ari Shapiro, and it's time now for our Science News Roundup from our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast, Regina Barber and Jeff Brumfield. Good to have you here at the end of the year. Hey! Hi there. You usually talk us through three things happening in the science world each week, fresh off the journals and social media. But today you're going to give us three big things in science from the year 2023. I couldn't be more excited about it. Awesome. Well, we're going to tick through the top three science threads we saw unraveling this year. We have all the scientific discoveries happening from the James Webb Space Telescope. That's what that pile on your lap is. <laughs> <laughs> and fresh off of the COP28 conference, we'll talk climate. But we'll start with another really big theme, which I'm sure you're familiar with, artificial intelligence. Yes, I'm actually not speaking right now. It is a, <laughs> no, it's not an AI replica of my voice, but it feels like this year everybody's afraid that AI is going to come for our jobs. Yep. Um, so what, what have you got for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been a big worry for a lot of different fields. Visual artists have been sort of spooked by these image generators like Lensum, Midjourney, and Dolly. Lens has also been used to make AI social media avatars, which are, among other things, being used to push beauty standards to even higher, more unobtainable levels. And of course, the big text-based program that has many, a journalist, writer, you name it, in a panic was ChatGPT, the chatbot created by the company OpenAI. And over the course of the year, ChatGPT got more and more powerful and better at generating text. And it's not just ChatGPT. Like, many of the top tech companies all have their own AI, like Microsoft's Bing AI chatbot. 
That one made headlines this year for doing everything from professing its love for a journalist and trying to get him to leave his wife to more recently linking to conspiracy theories and lies when asked about elections. Well, panic aside, a lot of the industries that have started to really integrate AI are in the STEM field, science and tech, right? Yeah, so let's talk about medicine for a minute. Um, you know, the AI revolution was already well underway in medicine before ChatGPT showed up. Um, people have been developing algorithms to do things like diagnose diseases and scans and things like that. But with the language models, uh, things are going even further. Some companies are floating systems to try and streamline medical notes and patient records. Others are rolling out programs that can generate correspondence between doctors and patients. And that's got some researchers nervous. I spoke to Marzia Gassemi, uh, who's at MIT and studies AI uses in healthcare. She cited one example where Microsoft has rolled out software to some hospitals that uses AI to write messages from doctors to their patients. They're allowing it to draft this text um, as a suggestion of how a person should communicate with their patient. And, and uh, that worries me. Because it really hasn't been tested. And we know AI can suffer from hallucinations, basically just make stuff up. It can give misleading information. And there's bias in the training sets that can discriminate sort of unconsciously against different groups of people. But the fact of the matter is there's so much pressure on doctors in the medical system that these sorts of tools are going to get tried. And, and that's what's happening. Yeah. And in the sciences, AI is already starting to find its place, uh, specifically in fields like chemistry and biology, where researchers have like a huge number of molecules and compounds to test. It can try to find ones that match the researcher's criteria, and people can synthesize the candidate chemicals or compounds in real life to see whether they work. And some labs are taking things a step further. Researchers at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California and Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh have built robots that can do some of the synthesis and testing themselves, potentially further cutting down on time. And, you know, as long as I've been alive, I've heard that STEM careers come with guaranteed jobs. What does it mean if AI can do advanced chemistry. I mean, are scientists going to be out of work? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about jobs a lot this year as I've been reporting, and I keep coming up against this sort of basic truth, whether AI is being used in medicine, science, or even things like surveillance and national security. It always seems like it comes back to the fact that it works best with a human in the loop. Um, you know, I spoke to Sasha Lucioni, a researcher at an AI company called Hugging Face, and she put it this way. I don't see generative AI models replacing people, but I can see them, you know, helping people or, or, or being used by people in their existing jobs in order to, whatever, to, to go faster or, or to be, you know, to have more creative ideas. And our colleagues at Planet Money really saw this firsthand. They used AI to make a series of episodes and it worked. I mean, it did a lot of the work for them, but it worked best when they were giving it feedback. So I think that's something that, you know, we can we can hold out some hope that they're not just going to take our jobs, the bots. Okay. Well, our second big topic is climate. What have you got for us? Yeah, so 2023 was a hot year. So hot that once all the data is in, it's expected to be announced that this year was the hottest on record. And I know scientists say if we want to avoid the most catastrophic effects of climate change, humans need to keep global temperatures from increasing more than 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. How close are we to that number right now? The average temperature of the Earth over the last decade was about 1 degree Celsius higher than pre-industrial temperatures, so we're definitely getting close. Yeah, and earlier this year, our colleague on the climate desk, Rebecca Hersher, she reported that to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, humans would have to slash greenhouse gas emissions more than 40 percent by 2030. And we're not on track to do that. 
Yeah. Even the most ambitious plans to cut emissions wouldn't get to zero by 2050. So you're right. It's unlikely. But it's not like a cliff where humans are doomed as soon as we reach 1.5 degrees Celsius. We still have a lot of power to limit the negative impacts of climate change. Well, right. A cliff implies that you either go over it or you don't. But if we don't hit 1.5, we have to keep it below two. And if we don't keep it below two, we have to keep it below two. Like it keeps getting worse, right? Yeah. I mean, that is stressful. But I do want to say it's not all doom and gloom. Like humans are taking action around the globe. And NPR covered some of those efforts during our Climate Solutions Week, like how Uruguay is using wind power and other green energy sources to help power their grid, 98% of the country's grid. Okay, we'll take hope from Uruguay. Uh, Let's leave this planet for a moment and check in on the James Webb Space Telescope, which continued sending back incredible images this year. Gina, you've reported on what this means for astronomy. Yeah, so this telescope has given astronomers a view into the early universe, like showing us the earliest galaxies, black holes, stars that we've ever seen. And what they look like is shocking to scientists because they are way more grown up than scientists like astrophysicist Jorge Moreno expected. It's like if you went to a kindergarten and you saw a teenager. For perspective, I mean, galaxies were thought to form about a billion years after the Big Bang, you know, given the universe is around 13.7 billion years old in total. But now JWST is really testing that hypothesis. Yeah, and also to put these discoveries in perspective, another astrophysicist, Priya Natarajan, pointed out that we have already detected the oldest galaxy, the oldest black hole, just since JWST started its science operations last year. So she's pretty sure we'll discover more record breakers in 2024. Temperature records on climate, age records on black holes. It's a year of records. That's Regina Barber and Jeff Brumfield from NPR Science Podcast Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Thank you both. Thank you, Ari. Thanks. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. More and more European drivers are going electric, and this has given rise to an unlikely competitor for traditional European car makers like BMW and Volkswagen, Chinese electric vehicle makers. And as NPR's H.J. Mai reports, European car makers are considering this an existential threat. Short Janssen is a typical European car buyer. He and his family live near a big city with reliable transportation. I'm uh, eight minutes from the center of Copenhagen by train. But they still wanted a family car. And so they went looking. Janssen, like many others in Europe, decided that his next vehicle will be an electric one. It's a mindset driven by environmental concerns and generous government incentives. They thought about getting a Tesla, a Nissan or a Volvo. We were actually going for the Volvo. And then uh, we then saw this offer from BYD which was, I think, about 20% lower than the the Volvo. Janssen said he'd never even heard of BYD before, a Chinese brand that officially launched in Europe in 2022. We are BYD. You've probably never heard of us. But hey, we know you just want to drive a great electric car. 
Chinese automakers within just a couple of years have flooded the European market with their cars. Customs data shows that Chinese EV shipments to the European Union have increased by 361% since 2021. For Janssen, the BYD offer was simply too good to pass up. Not only was the price 20% lower, you also got uh, 8,000 euros in uh, goodies like free charging for two years and free tires. So it was hard to resist, to be honest. China has emerged as the world's largest market for EVs with millions of domestic sales. And it has done so by boosting its domestic auto industry with a mix of big financial help from state subsidies to substantial tax breaks says Mark Wakefield of global consulting firm Alex Partners. They've really led the way. They've gone really past that early adopter phase and they're into the mass market. In Europe, Chinese EVs still have to overcome a perception of poor quality. But as Wakefield confirms, today's cars from China are much improved. These are very advanced vehicles. They are not quite up to the quality standards that the US and European uh, vehicles are, but they've come a long way and the difference is now Pretty negligible. And sales for Chinese car makers in Europe have surged. The MG4 hatchback, produced by Chinese-owned MG, has been among the top-selling EVs in Europe during the first half of the year. Others like NIO, BYD or Geely also have substantially increased their market shares. And that's created a lot of concern in Brussels. The European Union this year launched an investigation into China's alleged unfair trade practices, as Commission President Ursula von der Leyen explained. And their price is kept artificially low by huge state subsidies. This is distorting our market. Beijing responded, calling the move blatant protectionist behavior. Janssen's message to European automakers is simple. Make cheaper cars or lose customers like him. We're in a globalized world, so you cannot really prevent uh, people making cheaper things coming into your country. Of course, you can use protect protectionism and so, but that's just uh, cheating on your uh, inhabitants, you can say, right? Janssen himself is happy with his purchase, having driven more than 10,000 kilometers in less than five months. Some European automakers had to announce price cuts or even layoffs to remain competitive in the rapidly changing EV market. And Europe is just a starting point, as most Chinese brands aim to enter the U.S. market in the coming years, potentially disrupting America's auto industry. H.J. Mai, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR on this Thursday evening. Coming up, there are a lot of changes for the media landscape. NPR's Eric Deggins has thoughts on what to look out for in 2024. Coming to City Space Thursday, January 4th, Dr. Pooja Lakshman talks about her new book that challenges the industrial wellness complex, offers tips for genuine self-care as well. Get tickets for the event coming up a week from tonight at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids. Because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. As of now, it looks like we could have gray and damp weather with us until Sunday, New Year's Eve day. Tonight should be cloudy, just a little bit cooler than it is right now. Temperatures in the low 40s. Tomorrow, overcast again. Some showers around. Temperatures in the mid-40s again. And then the weekend should start with clouds on Saturday, then turn sunny on Sunday. It's 549. 
Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of Cognoscenti, WBUR's ideas and opinion page. We asked our readers to tell us about the most memorable gifts they'd ever received. People told us all sorts of things. A positive pregnancy test, barbecue potato chips, an inflatable boat. I wrote about the bamboo fruit bowl my husband bought me about 20 years ago. We still have it. Gifts can be expensive or dirt cheap. They can be objects or experiences. The best gifts are totally subjective, but often they delight or startle or make you feel truly known. During this holiday season, I hope you'll consider a gift to WBUR. Help us go beyond the news of the day to bring you stories that illuminate ideas and foster understanding. Give now at WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The L.A. Dodgers have been busy this offseason. Over the past few weeks, they have spent just over a billion dollars beefing up their roster. And a big chunk of that is going to 25-year-old Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who just became the highest-paid pitcher in Major League Baseball. Mike DiGiovanna covers the MLB for the L.A. Times, and he's with us now. Hi there. Hey, how you doing, Ari? I'm good. Who is Yoshinobu Yamamoto, and why were the Dodgers so keen to sign him? Well, the Dodgers weren't the only team. You know, he had a good dozen teams uh, pursuing him aggressively. I think when you combine his age, he's only 25, his track record already, he's uh, won the MVP over in Japan for three straight years and the equivalent of their Cy Young Award for three straight years. And the fact that you don't have to give up any players in a trade uh, to get a pitcher of this caliber, I think is what made him most attractive. And to put this into context, just a few weeks ago, the Dodgers inked the largest deal in baseball history with another Japanese player, Shohei Otani. What are your thoughts about how this is shaping up? Well, the Otani deal was historic in its uh, size, uh, but I think also in its structure. He deferred $680 million of that $700 million deal until after the 10 years is up. By doing that, he reduced the uh, present-day value of that $700 million down to about $460 million. That lowered the luxury tax hit the Dodgers will take on their payroll and uh, allowed them uh, the resources to go out and get Yamamoto. So they're, you know, it's a practical steal. They're getting a bargain. (laughs) And he's going to probably pay for himself with all the extra income uh, the Dodgers are going to generate from marketing, advertising, and sponsorship with Japanese companies. I mean, I guess that's the question. Is it worth it at the end of the day, not only in the payoff commercially, but also in getting a World Series title? Like, is this a good deal that they're making? I think it's a great deal. One, Shohei Otani, especially when he returns to pitching in 2025, is the best player in baseball. And I think, uh, you know, as, as much of an impact as he will have on the field, he could generate a billion dollars in extra revenue for the Dodgers, uh, especially when you piggyback him with Yamamoto now. So he could actually pay for himself. That is wild. Just broadly speaking, what do you think this says about the pipeline between the American and Japanese leagues in baseball? I think it's always been pretty robust. Teams have always been willing to take a chance on pitchers that are a little uh, more mystery. Uh, but I think now when you have uh, you know, all the, the technology, the pitch tracking data that teams have in Japan, you can know the velocity, the shape for these pitchers in Japan that you didn't have 20 years ago. So there's a little less mystery. Uh, I think the risk is a little lower. And I think these guys are really good. Mike Giovanna covers the MLB for the Los Angeles Times. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ari. 
If you were a kid in the 1980s or early 90s watching PBS, you might recognize this voice. You got your pencil ready? You have your paper out in front of you? Right? Okay, we're ready to draw today. That's Mark Kistler, or Commander Mark, as he's known to fans. He's the creator of several PBS children's television shows, including The Secret City, and he's also the author of many books on drawing. He is like the Bob Ross of drawing. Now there's a new documentary film out about Kistler's life and work. L.A. Johnson, an art director and illustrator at NPR, sat down with Kistler to discuss the power of the pencil. Hi, I'm Commander Mark. And this is the secret city. Commander Mark had big, bright eyes and a wide, mustachioed smile that were like a magnet to me. Isn't drawing fun? It really captivates you and gets you moving. Dressed in bright red military coveralls with a bandolier filled with markers, he created magical worlds with his pen. It was this just eruption of energy on the screen. The new documentary, The Secret Cities of Mark Kistler, takes us back to the 80s where it all began. It tells the story of how the shows were built and their legacy. We wanted to create a safe place for kids who can travel to in their imaginations. Born in Ohio, Mark, Mark Kistler grew up in Southern California. At 18 years old, he fell in love with teaching art. Now I'm gonna let you decide. And over time, he came up with a goal to teach a million kids to draw. Or what kind of texture I should use on a design right here. I can use small little circles or squares. It didn't seem a crazy idea, he says, because he really believed anyone could draw. 40 years later, he told me he still believes it. You can draw. If you can write your name, you can draw. Chatting with Mark Kistler is kind of like listening to a self-improvement audiobook. You can do this, is his messaging. He believes drawing is the way to visualize and achieve your life goals. And he's even got a handy catchphrase. Dream it, draw it, do it. Kistler teaches drawing fundamentals using a step-by-step -step approach based on copying and tracing. It differs from classical art classes that teach drawing from observation or realistic art. All of this is done with a generous dose of showmanship and lessons about attitude. This is fun, huh? Don't you get in a good mood when you start to draw? So you're becoming much more confident, I've noticed that. Kissler's style is certainly fun and encouraging, but I wondered, is it just a gimmick or does it really teach kids how to draw? There's lots and lots of ways to teach drawing. There's not one correct way. Seymour Simmons is a retired professor of art and art education from Winthrop University in South Carolina. Drawing is observation. Drawing is invention. Drawing is self-expression. Drawing is problem solving. Drawing is a visual language. There's so many different methods. One thing common to all of them, he notes, is that learning to draw is a discipline, but it also needs to be fun. And that's where Commander Mark comes in. Mark Kistler has a fabulous approach to the drawing is ideation and invention. Kistler says all of this is super important at a time when arts education is often a victim of budget cuts. And so much of the emphasis in education is about STEM. Science and technology and engineering and math, all very noble and important pursuits. But without the art, how can you solve the problems? You have to get that creativity. And as if to prove his point, while we're talking, Mark Kistler makes an unusual request. Can we do a drawing together? I wanted to draw this toucan with you. Yeah, I think we can. Uh, I see Kistler change as he slips into teacher mode. See what I'm doing? <laughs> and switches over to a script in his head that he's honed over four decades. Toucan. I love this toucan. So I'll start down here 
at the bottom of my page. I'll admit it. At first, I feel a little silly drawing this. This cartoon toucan is a bug-eyed, fluffy little guy sitting on a tree branch. I'm going to draw the toucan beak coming way out. So look at this. I have an art degree, but my inner child artist is giddy. The first step I mentioned to the students is to draw really light. We're going to do layer upon layer of detail. Pretty quickly, so we both light, start to relax and loosen up. And I remember it doesn't matter how it looks. It's the act of drawing that holds power. It doesn't have to be perfect. Remember, no stress, no stress. Give yourself permission to make mistakes. Wave goodbye to the stress bus. Bye-bye. I humbly wave bye-bye to the stress bus and my ego and lighten up. Hey, even us pros can get stuck in our heads. Here, hold up your drawing. Let me see it. Hold it up to the... Yeah, it's getting there. Yes! Oh, that's so awesome. You're really developing true pencil power. Pencil power, that's right. Gimmick or not, after 15 minutes drawing with Mark, I felt great. Because no matter what stage you're at, beginning or professional, we could all use a little encouragement. L.A. Johnson, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Craft in America with two new episodes, Play and Miniatures, premiering on PBS December 29th at 9 and 10 p.m., now streaming on the PBS app and craftinamerica.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israeli leaders are warning that if the militant group Hezbollah keeps firing on northern Israel from Lebanon, the Israeli military will strike back, opening a new front in the war. This as aid groups warn of the desperate state of civilians in Gaza. It's Thursday, December 28th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Mao Zedong built China's communist revolution on the back of the country's impoverished peasants. And now Chinese leader Xi Jinping wants a new revolution to take root in the countryside, an economic one. And the best-known cyclist in Colombia is a social media sensation, but his path to celebrity was an unlikely one. Rigo, somehow or other, he came out of that, and that has to be a kind of genius. The improbable story of Colombia's top athlete turned pitchman. It's 6.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The October 7th attack on southern Israel by the militant group Hamas has delayed the Israeli government's attempt to overhaul its judiciary. 
The proposed reforms had outraged many Israeli citizens who argued the move was an attempt to break the nation's democracy. But as NPR's Frank Langford reports, there are increasing concerns that the threat could return. Judicial reform, a dry-sounding package of legislation, convulsed the country earlier this year, bringing hundreds of thousands of protesters into the streets. One of the architects of the legislation insists it is dead and, with the country at war, says it's time for unity. But critics say the government is working on at least several dozen other bills to undermine the democratic system, and they won't exhale until their new elections. In the meantime, the Supreme Court is preparing to weigh in on a law that would limit its ability to rule on government decisions, which critics call another crucial attempt to undermine the balance of power in Israel's democracy. Frank Langford, NPR News, Jerusalem. A caravan of migrants continues to make its way toward the United States amid U.S. efforts to stem the unprecedented influx of migrants arriving at the southern border. Democratic Congressman Vicente Gonzalez represents a district in Texas that's close to the border. We need to raise the credible fear standard at the border, and we need to have expedited hearings, and we need to have expedited removals, and we need to enforce American immigration laws in a humane way. We're not going to rip children out of mother's arms and separate families like what happened under the Trump administration, but we do need to enforce American immigration laws at the border. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and other top Biden administration officials held talks in Mexico City on Wednesday to discuss possible solutions moving forward. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission has filed a lawsuit against Grand Canyon University. NPR's Janet Ujung Lee reports it's one of the latest cases on the deceptive branding of colleges. The FTC announced Wednesday that it's filed a complaint against Grand Canyon University. That's for misrepresenting the school as a nonprofit through deceptive advertising and illegal telemarketing. The complaint also accuses the school for providing misinformation on the cost and course requirement of its doctoral programs. According to the Ed Department, less than 2% of the program's graduates have finished their degree within the advertised cost, and just under 80% of students had to take five or more courses than planned. Janet Wujang Lee, NPR News. Stocks traded mixed today on Wall Street. At the close, the Dow was up 53 points. The Nasdaq fell four. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state of Massachusetts has fined local housing agencies more than $4 million over the past four years for letting public housing units go empty without good reason. But until recently, the state either forgave the fine or never collected most of the money. Massachusetts Housing Secretary Ed Augustus says the state plans to make sure fines are enforced going forward. Primarily, it's because we want to make sure that we know when units are offline, they're offline for good reason, so it's an accountability mechanism. The state says it will begin automatically deducting fines from the money they give public housing agencies. Employees at Mass General Brigham will be required to wear masks starting in January. That's due to increasing rates of COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses in the state. Patients and visitors to Mass General Brigham's facilities are encouraged to wear masks as well. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute reinstated its mask mandate earlier this month. Two teenagers are dead following a shooting in Lynn last night. It was a second straight night of gun violence in the city. On Tuesday, three people were injured in a shooting. They're now in stable condition. Lynn's mayor issued a statement today offering condolences and condemning the violence. Investigations are ongoing.
The wet weather is in the forecast into the weekend. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Leatham says the slightly warmer temperatures will drop. We're still going to stay uh, warmer than normal with um, readings in the mid to upper 40s for highs today, uh, basically into Saturday. Um, however, as we get into uh, Sunday, New Year's Eve, um, and as we head into early next week, um, temperatures do become more seasonable. Latham says high temperatures will be in the upper 30s with no snow in the forecast. 44 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. WBUR supporters include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Israeli leaders are warning that there could now be a war to its north in Lebanon. There have been near-daily rocket attacks from Lebanese militias, with Israeli attacks in return. This comes as Israel's offensive continues in Gaza, nearly three months after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. NPR's Jason DeRose is following these developments from Tel Aviv. Hi, Jason. Hello. What is the concern on the Israel-Lebanon border? What's happening there right now? Well, the head of the Israeli military says troops were, quote, in very high readiness for expanded fighting to the north. Member of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's war cabinet, Benny Gantz, said yesterday the military could move to push militants away from the border if diplomacy and pressure don't work. And that time is running out. Um, Ari, the last couple of days have seen a significant increase in the rocket attacks from Hezbollah. That's the Lebanese militia that has a lot of heavy weapons compared to Hamas. Those rockets result in those air raid sirens going off and activating the defense system called Iron Dome to shoot them down. And this has been going on for weeks. Tens of thousands have been evacuated on both sides of the border. Also, Hamas is still firing rockets into Israel from the south. And all of that is keeping many people here on near constant edge. I want to turn to an airstrike at the Maghazi refugee camp in Gaza that happened over the weekend. Israel addressed that strike today. Tell us what they've said. Well, that's one of the deadliest single instances since Israel began these strikes. The Associated Press had a reporter near there who saw the hospital records showing 106 killed. The Israeli military says that on December 24th, fighter jets attacked two nearby targets where a number of Hamas operatives were believed to be located. It says before the attack, it took steps to reduce the harm to those not involved. The military today says in a statement that a preliminary investigation shows that during the operation, additional buildings adjacent to the targets were damaged. And it says the investigation continues into how this happened, that it regrets the harm caused to civilians, and that it's working to draw lessons from the incident. As a reminder, Ari, Gaza health officials say the death toll there has surpassed 21,000 people now. That's mostly women and children. All right, let's pivot now from Gaza to the West Bank, where Israel arrested people, it says, to stop them from sending money to Hamas. What more can you tell us about that? 
Well, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, says five money-changing companies in the Israeli-occupied West Bank have been named as terrorist organizations. He says the offices transferred money to Hamas and the group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. After the defense minister signed the order declaring them terrorist organizations, Israeli forces raided nine currency exchange branches in the West Bank, according to Gallant. He says authorities confiscated the equivalent of nearly $2.8 million. Gallant says security forces also arrested 21 Palestinians suspected of transferring funds to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And what do the money exchanges say to those allegations? Well, some have denied they have anything to do with Hamas. Here's Mahmoud Ajuli, the nephew of the owner of one of the money exchanges who was arrested in the city of Al-Bariya in the West Bank. Ajuli says he knows that his uncle, Anwar Ajuli, was arrested But that's the only thing he knows. Now, the Palestinian Authority's Monetary Commission issued a statement saying that raiding the money changers is illegal, that those shops aren't under the jurisdiction of the Israeli government. And finally, will you just update us on the humanitarian situation in Gaza, which becomes more dire each day? Ari, there are so many problems in Gaza. Water, fuel, communications, medical care. But let's focus on food right now. The UN's World Food Program says the scale, speed, and severity of the food insecurity in Gaza is unprecedented. Because food is so scarce, the UN has activated its Famine Review Committee. It's warning that the risk of famine increases every day because of the intense fighting and the lack of humanitarian access. And it's important to remember that prior to October 7th, about 500 supply trucks brought food and medicine and fuel into Gaza each day. Now, and Gaza has more than 2 million people, and on many days, only about 100 or so trucks are getting in with those badly needed supplies, food, water, and medicine. NPR's Jason DeRose in Tel Aviv. Thank you. You're welcome. Now, a story of the changing fortunes of one village in China. Almost 20 years ago, a mid-ranking Chinese official by the name of Xi Jinping visited a village a couple hours west of Shanghai. The locals were closing down mines, upgrading the economy, cleaning the environment. She was impressed, and when he went back 15 years later, this time as China's president, he declared it a model village. A sputtering economy is now pushing more people into gig work post-COVID, so a pair of entrepreneurs have teamed up with the local government to try to make that same village a model once again. NPR's John Ruich paid them a visit. The village of Yuzun's first transformation was from being a polluted backwater to a national class 4A scenic spot visited by daily tours. China's rapid development had often come at the expense of the environment, and Yuzun showed that that didn't always have to be the case. This time around, the stakes are just as high. A short bike ride from the center of town is DN Yuzun a hub for digital nomads, or people who essentially can work online from anywhere. It's run by two men, Xu Song and Ade. 
Xu Song says the digital nomad hub here is fundamentally like infrastructure. If you want to get rich, he says, citing an old saying, you have to build roads first. And yes, there is a cost in it for local government. But because of roads, the economies of the villages near them can develop. The digital nomad hub can be a similar catalyst. This is a modern living and co-working space that can accommodate about 150 people. It's got fast internet, a gym, decent coffee, and it's in a building that already existed but nobody used. There are lots of those buildings around China from past development schemes, Xu says. As the ecosystem expands and spreads, those assets that nobody wanted become something that people want because they'll think, I could open a coffee shop here, I could open a small restaurant, I could open a youth hostel. That's because now there are more people around. People like 22-year-old Yang Xiaoshui. Yang is taking a gap year between her third and fourth years of college. She's trying to get a small product design company off the ground. And she says she has the ideal work-life balance here. She likes the freedom of doing her own thing and the fact that she's near nature. The DN Yutsun model seems to jive with Xi Jinping's plans, too. Two years ago, she declared victory over poverty in China. Now he's doubling down on the idea of revitalizing the countryside. Experts say, in part, that means diversifying the economy and making it more digital. Kristen Looney is a China hand at Georgetown University. She says it serves another purpose, too. Oftentimes, these policies that target the countryside are not so much about the countryside, but they are about the externalities of growth in the cities. Chinese cities are overcrowded. Youth unemployment was last reported at over 20 percent. And homes in urban areas are too pricey for many to afford. Yet, over the past several decades, that's where opportunity and fortune have been found. And there's this huge hollowing out of villages. And so if you can't convince people to stay, maybe you can convince young people who've never been in the countryside, right, to go. Officials appear intrigued. Xu Song says the authorities are paying for DN Yutsun's land and utilities. And he's had several queries from other villages about the model. The Minister of Human Resources and Social Security even visited from Beijing a few months ago. As the afternoon winds down, Ada gets a pickup game of Ultimate Frisbee going. It's part of DN Yutsun's many efforts to build community and make digital nomad life fun. At 4 p.m. over in that building, there's another activity. They've invited a sports expert to talk about staying hydrated during exercise. (laughs) It's not every day you see a frisbee game in rural China, but that's part of the point. Xu Song says he imagines a different future for the countryside. It's a place, he says, where you'll be able to chat about quantum physics or Kafka, listen to chamber music, and have a glass of red wine. And it's almost possible to envision that happening here at DN Yutsun. It's just unclear how this test case can scale up. John Ruich, NPR News, Yutsun, China.
we can't let 2023 end without the All Things Considered holiday cocktail tradition. And this year, we are going zero proof, but please don't call them mocktails. I prefer to say elevated and elegant, non-alcoholic, spirit-free cocktails. We take a visit to Binge Bar for Zero Proof Cocktails. That story tomorrow on All Things Considered. You can listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. Bottoms up. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace this evening. The adverse effects of pollution and climate change are already happening, and they're forcing black residents to move out of their homes in the Midwest. Really the only way to guarantee safe and healthy communities is to have these polluting industries not exist there. How environmental racism is causing another great migration. That's coming up on Business News tonight, which starts at 6.30. Modest gains for the Dow today. It was up more than a tenth of a percent. S&P barely budged. Same thing for the Nasdaq. It lost just a small fraction. Maine lobstermen say that new electronic monitoring requirements are violating their constitutional right to privacy. Earlier this month, the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission started to require lobstermen to install equipment that tracks their boat's location every minute that the boat's in motion. But the Maine Lobstering Union is asking the state to delay the tracking until the next fishing season. The union's director, Virginia Olson, says monitoring the lobstermen is a violation because many of them use their boats for purposes other than fishing. And those uh, one-minute pings really feel like a warrantless tracking, a GPS without a warrant. The Maine Department of Marine Resources is not commenting on the request for a delay. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Feldman Geospatial, Presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. Sunday, December 31st is your last chance to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Should stay pretty raw through the nighttime hours. Breezy, not too chilly tonight, just a few degrees cooler than it is right now. Tomorrow, more rain uh, should be in the mid-40s for a high. And then the weekend is looking mixed. Cloudy on Saturday, the chance of showers close to 50. Sunday should be sunny finally, but cooler closer to 40. It's 620. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the Public Welfare Foundation committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We want a fair play! We want a fair play! We want a fair play!
That sound of Hollywood writers protesting during a strike that would last 148 days is a prime example of why 2023 was such a tough year for television and for media. Along with the actors and writers' strikes, the last 12 months have brought widespread layoffs across media companies, including here at NPR. And then there are the price hikes at streaming services and questions about whether cable TV can survive in an era of rampant cord cutting. But NPR TV critic Eric Degen says media's troubles this year offer clues about the most important questions companies will face next year. Hey, Eric. Hi. So, Eric, we heard there the sounds of protests from the strikes that hobbled the film and TV industry this year. And I'm assuming one big question for 2024 is how will entertainment get going again after so much downtime? Uh, Absolutely. But it's almost a deeper question than that, because what we also saw this year was a lot of important TV shows wrap up their series runs. So programs like Barry on HBO, The Crown on Netflix, and my pick for best TV show of the year, HBO Succession, they all ended in 2023. So I predict we're going to see a bit of a lull in high quality TV shows in the beginning of 2024, particularly among the streaming services, which have these long lead times for production, and they need to re stock their lineups. And we also saw a lot of shows canceled unexpectedly during the strikes, which raises questions about diversity. I mean, shows that got canceled include programs starring and led by people from marginalized groups like ABC's Black-centered reboot of The Wonder Years or the LGBTQ-focused revamp of A League of Their Own on Prime Video. So far, I'm counting nearly a dozen shows featuring these kinds of characters and subjects that won't return for 2024. Eric, I want to stick with the streamers here for just a moment. We've already seen a bunch of them hike up their prices this year. What can we expect to see on that front in the new year? Uh, Unfortunately, more of the same. (laughs) These prices are going to go up as Wall Street continues to pressure the streaming services for profits. So on January 29th, for example, Amazon is going to charge $2.99 more per month for ad-free streaming. The trade magazine Variety reported that in October, seven top streaming services, including Disney+, Netflix, and Apple TV Plus raised their monthly fees an average of 23%. I mean, I think we're going to see also more bundling together of services, particularly if Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns HBO and CNN, pursues this deal that they're considering now to purchase or merge with Paramount Global, which owns cable channels like MTV and BT, along with the CBS network and Paramount Plus. How could a deal like that potentially affect what viewers see? Well, let's leave aside the question of whether it's an unfair monopoly, which is a big question, but let's imagine if Warner Brothers Discovery's Max streaming service, which has HBO and CNN and Discovery Networks, if they could add CBS shows and programs like Yellowstone. I mean, in a way, it's back to the future. Streaming services were supposed to free consumers from paying for cable channels they didn't watch, but it's sometimes cheaper or more convenient to bundle these platforms together, even in streaming. Eric, we've talked a lot about the challenges, but I want to end by asking you about the good. What are you looking forward to in 2024? Well, I'm really excited by new seasons from a lot of shows like HBO's True Detective, a new series from The Walking Dead universe with hero Rick Grimes, and a new Alien TV series all coming in 2024. That's NPR TV critic Eric Daggins. Thank you. Thank you. Athletes who want to be branding superstars usually need to do two things, win championships and avoid doing anything that upsets sponsors. Think Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, or Roger Federer, all masters of milk toast in front of the microphone. But in Colombia, the top athlete-turned-pitchman is a foul-mouthed free spirit who's never won the big one. Reporter John Otis has more. 
The crowd roars as Rigoberto Uran takes the stage at the Giro de Rigo, a massive cycling event that he hosts here in Colombia. In this cycling mad nation, Uran, universally known as Rigo, is one of Colombia's top cyclists and salesmen. He sells his own brand of cycling gear called Go Rigo Go. He operates Rigo-themed restaurants, and he's a constant presence on TV, endorsing everything from mattresses to mobile phones. Ironically, he's done all this while never winning his sport's biggest races. Other Colombians have won the Tour de France, Giro d'Italia, and Vuelta a España, but Uran has fallen just short. He nearly won the Olympic road race in 2012, but instead took the silver medal. Uran tells NPR that his status as perennial bridesmaid is part of his appeal. I think lots of people identify with me because they want to win but don't quite make it, he says. Whether he's winning or losing, Uran always seems to be savoring the experience. Most athletes get really stressed and don't enjoy anything, he says, but to ride in the Tour de France is very special. Uran also stands out because in an era of scripted, risk-adverse celebrity athletes, he's unpredictable. He jokes around and sprinkles his speech with vulgarities. Here he is on a Colombian talk show explaining how, during long races, cyclists relieve themselves from their bikes, peeing while pedaling 25 miles an hour. Uran's sense of humor helped him weather a tough childhood. He grew up in an Andean mountain town where, during the height of Colombia's guerrilla war, his father was killed by paramilitary gunmen. There was this pall of mourning over the whole town. That's Matt Rendell, who has written several books on Colombian cycling. And Rigo, somehow or other, he came out of that, and that has to be a kind of genius. Though just 14, Uran became his family's breadwinner. I did everything, Uran says. I sold lottery tickets. I worked on a bus. But when I began cycling, I was able to help my family even more. Indeed, he began winning prize money in local races. Eventually, he moved to Europe to ride for the top pro cycling teams. His finest hour came at the 2017 Tour de France, where he earned a spot on the podium as the race's runner-up. If his improbable story seems made for television, well, it has been. A TV series called Rigo is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Now 36, Uran plans to retire from cycling next year to focus on his many business ventures. To promote the next generation of cyclists, he holds his annual Giro the Rigo. It's a wildly popular race in which amateurs, like Colombian dermatologist Andre Enciso, get to rub shoulders with their hero. Rigo is that person that you feel like you are his friend or his family. I took part in the latest Giro de Rigo, held last month near the Colombian town of Girardot. It drew 5,000 cyclists. Uran was the last rider to begin the race, but he zipped past nearly everyone. Okay, that was Rigo, and he just passed us here on the highway. 
Going about three times faster than most of us. He may never win the Tour de France, but the guy can still go. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Girardot, Colombia. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, the Celtics have a 7.30 date at the Garden with Detroit. Celtics will be without one of their best players, all-star forward Jalen Brown, who's out due to an injury. Boston's at the top of the NBA. The Pistons are at the bottom. They've lost their last 27 games. Join us on Monday, January 8th at City Space for a conversation with Jack Zhang, chef and stay-at-home dad, whose viral videos of cooking for his two-year-old son have inspired a new cookbook, Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Some of the rain we've been having all day today should move on out tonight. Temperatures in the low 40s tonight. Tomorrow back in the mid-40s, gray skies, some showers returning, although it shouldn't be as wet as today was. Then for the weekend, clouds on Saturday warming to about 50. At least some sunshine on Sunday, the final day of the year. 44 degrees now in Boston at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities 